healthy environments should be considered a human right. That's Memo Cedeno Laurent, an expert in the field of healthy spaces. The idea is that through our research, and speaking of a whole body of researchers that is dedicated to this topic, is that we advance the way that we see buildings. Memo joins us from the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he is the Associate Director of the Healthy Buildings Program. Today, Memo shares his insights on how exposure to different indoor environments affect our health, productivity, and safety, and discusses the compelling evidence that links energy efficiency, opportunity, and buildings to public health. I'm Rasha Hassani, and you're listening to Healthy Spaces with Train Technologies, a series of conversations that explores the world of indoor environments from the inside out. The study of healthy buildings is a well-established field of science. However, it's only recently, as we continue to fight our way through the pandemic, that organizations like the Healthy Buildings Program have been thrust into the public eye. My research focuses on studying what environmental exposures, meaning the, the stuff that we normally encounter in our spaces, like temperature, relative humidity, and other environmental factors, it allows us to really thrive in our activities in the way that we learn, that we work, that we live in in our homes and office buildings. So uh, pretty much uh, the stuff that determines our lives. Healthy buildings can play a significant role in our lives. What that role is, however, is often invisible if you don't know where to look. Memo and the Healthy Buildings team knew they needed to find a way to share their profound data-driven research in a digestible format. So they created a framework called the Nine Foundations of a Healthy Building. And really the purpose was to distill decades of indoor environmental quality research in a document uh, that anyone could read it. It's uh, very simple and either take action to improve these different nine domains of indoor environmental quality by themselves or bring it uh, to their uh, bosses to the people in charge and say, you know, this is clear evidence, scientific evidence that the way that we are managing, operating, designing our spaces has profound effects in different domains of our life. So that was the purpose. And the idea is that we try to encompass uh, really these foundational elements of our built environment and their relationship to health, productivity, and well-being. So the nine foundations for uh, our public consist of ventilation, air quality, thermal health, moisture, dust and pests, safety and security, water quality, noise, and lighting and views. So really, if you think about them, these are the elements that evolutionary we have been exposed in our environment, but by moving into a society uh, that really has thrived in the cities in uh, developed environments has changed their relationship to these elements. So now it's our uh, endeavor as scientists to understand what is this impact and how to uh, either mitigate it or even better, how to create uh, these buildings, these homes, uh, any type of environment that uh, really makes a difference 
to a positive, not only talking about deleterious environmental exposures, but those that makes us a, a optimal, that, that could even like make us thrive. A benefit of increased understanding around healthy spaces is empowering people with information that they can take to builders and other professionals. But as Memo explains, the individual occupant also plays a key role in maintaining a healthy building. Smart buildings have smart occupants. So we need to understand the relationships that we have with our buildings. I can tell you the truth uh, on this because that's something I do. I use many of these indoor environmental quality sensors in my own place. Just before uh, my son was born, I brought the instruments uh, and put them in the kitchen. And I realized how some things really brought the, like the pollution levels, the in particular matter, uh, very high. And you know, that delicious crispy bacon that I used to have on Saturday mornings, that just became a no-no since uh, he was, uh, before he was born. <laughs> so I'm not saying that we should stop eating bacon or not necessarily for those reasons, but uh, I would say that we should really pay attention to our behaviors. So it's a matter of understanding the environment. Obviously, as we think about indoor environmental quality, a lot of this stuff comes at at a cost. How do we think about the elements of balancing quality and efficiency together? So there are a couple of elements that we can bring to this conversation. When you deal with uh, the real estate folks, they often say, or quote this 330-300 rule, right? That for every $3 that are spent in energy, approximately $30 are spent in rent, and then that organization spends accordingly $300 in their human resources. So one thing that we have to uh, recognize is that sometimes saving on those $3 impacts the 300. However, we have to acknowledge that we live in challenging times and we have to be conscious about our consumption of material flows, meaning energy, water, how we dispose of things. I would say that buildings exist for a reason. Buildings exist for us to, to have a sense of security, have a sense of shelter. That has been the way that we move indoors, right? If you think about uh, also from the evolutionary perspective. Yet this uh, relationship changes according to the challenges of the times. So for example, I'm gonna put two very relevant challenges, COVID and climate change. In a place and time where we would consider buildings to be the first line of defense, our shelter, they have actually act a little bit against us. If we have buildings that were designed in their occupancy densities, in the amount of fresh air they brought uh, to people, in the filtration uh, systems that they had in their uh, controls, to mitigate the exposures, of infectious airborne transmitted diseases, maybe the story would be different. We wouldn't have to just retrieve and uh, be sent uh, to work from home. Likewise, think about climate change. I'm talking from my home here in Boston, and here uh, structures are older than in the rest of the country, and they have primarily been designed to really harness heat. 
in a way, tackle the historic weather patterns, that is, uh, those dominated by the cold weather. When a heat wave arises in Boston, these structures are going to do exactly the same that they were designed, to harness heat and then expose people to this heat for longer periods of time. So having said that, the challenge is paramount. How do we create these buildings? How do we operate them in a way that enhance uh, our health and also uh, reduce energy consumption? Those are the, the optimums. And I would bring one more thing to the equation. The most efficient building could be one that is not occupied. We spend that energy because we want to be comfortable, because we want to protect our health. So yes, there's going to be an energy penalty, but then I would say that we also have to include in the equation where we get that energy from, right? So it's not just the goal per se of minimizing energy consumption. We will need and we, we have to be extremely precise on what is that kilowatt hours per meter squared that we need, that we actually need to operate our buildings. But then it's more important where that energy comes from. Absolutely. And you touched a little bit about some of the challenges, you know, we have in the built environment. Obviously, we have some real focus areas today with COVID, with a lot of the climate change that's going on. In your experience, in your research, what do you see that we're, you know, that we're doing well? And what do you see that in, in terms of things that we could do better? Well, I can tell you that there's definitely some big successful stories related to buildings and public health. If you think about it, even the beginnings of our ventilation codes uh, responded to the challenges of those times that were the spread of tuberculosis. How we actually manage buildings in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. So some of those uh, challenges were really tackled by improving ventilation, by having even the right uh, ceiling height, design of operable windows, uh, the design of the floor plans that could uh, really allow for cross ventilation and other natural ventilation patterns. Then the beginning of the mechanical ventilation and filtration, uh, really, if you consider it, this is a well-known fact, if it wasn't for air conditioning, we wouldn't be able to inhabit some of the areas of the, of the world that we now do. Human beings are pretty adaptable, which is why until very recently, most people haven't given their indoor environmental quality much thought. If your acoustics are just a little off, or if the air quality is slightly poorer than average, you might not notice. They may be out of sight and out of mind, but these little things add up to a whole lot more than the sum of their parts. Now, faced with something like a pandemic, we're all starting to ask more questions, which is why, according to Memo, measurement and validation have never been more crucial. One of the reasons I think there's gonna be a transformation in the use of uh, data collection in, inside buildings, I think obeys to the old adage that you cannot understand what you don't measure. And there is the need to understand what's happening in our buildings. First of all, because we, in many cases, have to act immediately, real time. The second thing is because our occupants will be demanding that information. So think about it. 
in early March this year, everyone was sent home. We didn't know much about how COVID-19 was spread and the right public health measure at the time was confinement. It's still around 40% of the workforce are uh, working from home. So we have in a way adapted to this new uh, mode of uh, work and it's gonna be very challenging for uh, the real estate community to make sure that people feel safe back in their uh, office environments. So we need objective metrics that could uh, inform the general public on why things are safe, how things are safe, what is being done to keep things safe. So I think as the high performance uh, building movement advances, you know, it has gone through several transformations. I think there was initially a, a big push for uh, sustainability. Then there we're still, I think, at a nascent point of looking at health. This is what we call the green buildings. We see a next wave of this green building movement is on transparency and transparency being the new green. So the availability of data that is high quality, that assures that it's uh, uh, meaningful, I think is going to be critical to regain that confidence in our build environment. Based on what you're seeing, I think you're you're absolutely right and engendering sort of that consumer confidence. So in addition to saying, hey, we're open, you know, we need to be able to say we're open and it's safe for you to sort of crawl out of your house and, and do and do some of what you used to do before. What are some of the things that you've seen that help to convince consumers that buildings are safe? Have you seen any sort of best practices or, or approaches that, that seem to work? I think consumers these times are extremely well informed. The availability of information is actually in sometimes overwhelming, but there are very well trusted voices and they have been very vocal in these times. So I think the existence of enhanced ventilation, enhanced filtration has been, I would say, mainstream right now. If you think about it, eight months ago, no one knew what a PCR test was. Now, you know, it's a, a kind of mainstream. And likewise, very few people knew about air changes per hour or MERV filter ratings or HEPA, right? And now I think the, the public is very well acquainted with those terms and know what they mean and know what they mean for their health. So I think it's really not rocket science. It, the combination of transparency of a goodwill of incorporating these best practices and uh, letting people know what is being done for them. It's not just about taking away that fear, but also letting them know of all the incredible co-benefits that are associated to a better managed environment. Right. And we know that the indoor environment has such a, a profound impact on both our productivity, our learning, our ability to sleep, relax, be alert, et cetera. Maybe you can share with us a little bit about the research in this space. And it'd be good to just help our listeners understand what some of that research says. Particularly in our uh, Healthy Buildings program, we've been very aggressive in pursuing the evaluation 
of the effects of indoor environmental quality, not only in subjective outcomes. So the field has lots of information, but it's primarily about the thermal comfort or self-reported uh, health outcomes. Uh, and that, you know, it's extremely valuable that has opened our eyes in general, but we needed a little bit more of a, a set of objective outcomes. And something that we have focused on is cognitive function. A few years ago, uh, Professor Joel and the, the director of the Healthy Buildings Program conducted this study on 24 individuals that were exposed to uh, basically different levels of indoor air quality that re would resemble a conventional building, a green building uh, certified by uh, current standards, and then an, an enhanced green building condition. The idea was that in the conventional building, levels of carbon dioxide would be average, levels of uh, volatile organic compounds the same, and in the green building, there would be a little bit of an improvement in ventilation, reducing that uh, CO2 levels and, and the VOCs. Lastly, the enhanced green would have extremely low CO2 concentrations, enhanced ventilation, and reduce uh, even lower VOC concentrations. So long story short, this very highly controlled experimental study found that the enhanced green condition led to an, a cognitive function improvements in the order of up to 150% better than the conventional building. So a massive increase in cognitive function performance in the test that we use, different, nine different domains of cognitive function that really proved that ventilation matters, that carbon dioxide alone seems to be affecting the way that we think and the volatile organic compounds the same. And if you think about the buildings that we are, we're looking to improve the quality, the air, environmental quality or the air quality of, right? It's office buildings, it's schools, it's places where cognitive function is very core to the tasks being accomplished in the space. And we know that there's similar correlations for lighting, similar correlations for acoustics. So really optimizing that space for the task being accomplished becomes really critical. We touched on air, we touched on lighting, we touched on human health, transparency. We talked a little bit about giving consumers confidence. Those are all almost disciplines that don't touch each other. So really, it sounds like what we're talking about is really a need for a multidisciplinary approach and role partnerships. I would say that this is the right moment for breaking down those walls that exist uh, between our siloed approaches. The challenges and the urgency to solve these challenges that we have in front of us are not giving us too much time, right? So we have to be extremely disruptive in our collaborations. We have to be extremely creative in how to catalyze the process that goes from findings, from publication, from implementation, from uh, that leads to policy. And I think we can be motivated by a very simple concept. Healthy environments should be considered a human right. I couldn't agree more with this sentiment. 
this isn't just about bringing together all the expertise around healthy buildings themselves. If we want to affect real change and reach everyone, we need to partner with people who can express the story to the public and with people who can influence policy and standards. The public interest in the indoor environment continues to grow. So I asked Memo for his take on what the next five years might bring. The way that I would like things to go is uh, that we are able to develop much tighter uh, networks of the key players, citizen scientists providing data collected on their own, incorporating the latest and the best technologies, wearable devices being uh, thrown into the mix, uh, smartphones really leveraging the capacity to collect data real time as we experience these different exposures and sensations, I think enabling the highest performance buildings to react swiftly to these environments, uh, to these uh, uh, conditions. And then, uh, as I said, that this doesn't become the technology that is just incorporated into class A buildings. Why, why do I think this is not a utopia? I think it's doable because we have realized how expensive it is to live in a society where the buildings don't actually do this for us. If you see the actual economic benefits from uh, doing this in schools, in homes, in offices, they vastly overpower and the, the expenses needed to make them happen. So obviously it's a change in paradigm where we realize that we are spending 90% of our life indoors. That is not gonna change. So the idea is how to make those buildings instead of the cost of our peril, the cost of our salvation. Some great insights there from Memo Cedeno Laurent, which really exemplify what we're all about exploring and understanding the indoor environment and ultimately the relationships we have with our buildings. Memo is participating on the advisory council for our Train Technology Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces, and we are so excited to be partnering with him. He's a font of knowledge and his world-class research and approach is of immense benefit to our work and this area of innovation. You've been listening to Healthy Spaces with Train Technologies. I'm Rasha Hassani. For more information on our conversation with Memo Cedeno Laurent, see the show notes in your podcast app. And don't forget to hit subscribe to hear new episodes. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to Professor Lydia Morasca from the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Queensland University of Technology. We'll be talking about what we can learn from the history of pandemic responses and mitigation strategies and the link between air quality, human health, and the environment. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you soon.